Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast, an independent podcast which is part of the Folklore Network, dedicated to collecting, preserving and making available folklore resources for the future. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. When most of us think of the term boggart, we probably first come up with the idea of a shape-shifting creature represented in the Harry Potter universe. But this is nothing like the actual folkloric creature which the word actually refers to. Boggarts have not been studied in particularly great detail until recently. They are a supernatural being specific to the north of England, but having much in common with other creatures from our folklore. My guest to discuss this subject is historian and author Simon Young. His new book on the Boggart is arguably the most in-depth study to date, drawing on both old sources and around 1,100 contemporary accounts collected through surveys and interviews. Simon disputes the traditional description put forward by Catherine Briggs that the Boggart was a goblin-like creature, but argues instead that it was a much more general term which encompassed aspects of most solitary supernatural creatures, from mermaids to ghosts and all points in between. This approach goes a long way to demonstrate how the continual misrepresentation of the Boggart by earlier folklorists led to the fantasy version of the creature that we know today. Simon, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. It's lovely to have you here. How is Italy today? Um, well, I'm ashamed to say that I've not actually left the house today, so I, I couldn't tell you. Um, it, it's certainly very cold in the house at the moment, so my, my guess is we're still in winter outside. Let's stay indoors where it's nice and warm, and um, hopefully everybody listening will also be indoors nice and warm and, and not on some cold commute somewhere as well. <laughs> OK, so we are going to talk about boggarts today but before we do that let's first talk about you tell everybody a little bit about yourself what you do and how you uh, became interested in the subjects that you cover okay well um my training was actually in medieval history um and so through my 20s and 30s i, I studied medieval history i did my doctorate in medieval history um but there came a point in my mid 30s where I, I became really quite ill um, and this took a couple of years out of my life and when I recovered I, I just felt that I no longer wanted to study medieval history and so at this point I became I, I, I guess I started thrashing around looking for something else to study I, I'm one of these people who needs to study and write about something and it was in that period that I slowly started coming across some interesting writers on English folklore and I had had an interest even in my teens in British fairy lore I'd always found fairies really fascinating and so about 10 years ago I published my first article on British fairy lore and from there I've very gradually and modestly extended into different parts of the British and particularly the English supernatural and boggets were just a part of that so I think most people, maybe I'm painting everybody with the same brush, a, a number of people when they consider boggarts are going to think about the way that they appear in popular culture. But can you perhaps 
define just to start off what we mean when we talk about a boggart in terms of folklore? Okay, well, yeah, this gets a little bit messy. It gets messy for the reason that if you go, say, to a fairy dictionary, we know there are many of these volumes around, you will have a description of something vaguely goblinoid. Um, an extreme example of this, and one that's proved very influential, is Catherine Briggs in her wonderful fairy dictionaries. Um, and in one of the two fairy dictionaries, she actually says that boggets have long, narrow noses um, and that they are the angry versions of brownies. Now, brownies, of course, are house spirits associated with the Scottish borders, the very north of England. And that when brownies become angry, brownies, according to Catherine Briggs, have no noses. But when they become angry, they sprout this nose and become a boggit and become troublesome. Um, and I, I dearly, dearly, dearly love Catherine Briggs. But this is just wall to wall nonsense. It's just wrong from beginning to end. Um, and it's a fascinating story in itself where all this misinformation came from. But if we went back to the part of the UK where people believed in boggets in the 19th century and even up until the Great War and the Second World War, and we'd said, what's a boggit? Um, they would have explained that a boggit was anything supernatural and solitary. So boggit actually it isn't a word like um, fairy or Jenny Greenteeth or even brownie that covers a fairly specific range. It's, it's a macro category. It's a generic category. It covers all the frightening, solitary, supernatural beings that you might find in the landscape around your house or even in your house. And so, for instance, um, a boring ghost would have been called a boggit in 19th century Lancashire. Um, a Jenny Greenteeth, the, the dreadful, murderous mermaid, who used to drag kids into their deaths in ponds um, in the West Riding in Lancashire, she would have been a boggit. Um, the, the black dogs of the Northwest were routinely described as boggits. So we're not talking about a species, if you like, of the supernatural. We're talking about an entire category. And maybe it's useful to actually say, what isn't a boggit? Um, and there were only really two categories there in the supernatural in terms of the things that people were seeing in the 1800s or early 1900s. Uh, angels were certainly not boggets. They were just too good. Uh, boggets at best were ambivalent. Um, they certainly weren't goody two shoes. Um, and then the other the other beings that were never described as boggets were fairies. Fairies were social creatures, um, even if they were met on their own. Boggit supplies to these scary, solitary beings that you find in the cellar or under the bridge at the corners of our existence. So they might be macro in terms of that descriptive element, but they're not macro in terms of geography particularly, are they? They, they tend to be focused in specific areas. Right. So I, I worked a lot in my in my Boggit book on this question. Um, where was it that Boggits were to be found? Um, and I, I spent a long time using place names, um, using boggets in stories, uh, using dialect guides to try and map boggets. Um, and essentially, um, boggets were found in the northwest of England. So this would be Lancashire, what today is southern Cumbria, uh, parts of Westmoreland, 
the West Riding of Yorkshire, but not particularly the East or the North Ridings. And then down into the Peak District. And so this would be the top of Derbyshire, the north of Cheshire, um, and also um, down into Nottinghamshire. And then there were pockets in the eastern side of England as well. There seems to have been a pocket around Cleveland in the northeast. Um, and there was certainly a, a substantial and really interesting pocket in northern Lincolnshire. But why is that? Why are they so specific in terms of geography for a creature, for want of a better term, that you would think would spread in the same way as as other genus of fairies do yeah so for example in england um it's true that fairies we can demonstrate i think looking at the sources of the last 500 years that everyone everywhere um, in england at one time or another had fairy law but even with fairies the name changes um, um, for example, in the Thames Estuary, there seems to have been places where fairies were called, called witches. And this goes on um, into the late 19th, early 20th centuries. There are other places, East Anglia, where they were called Pharisees. So there are different names for fairies around Britain. Um, and in the same way, I suspect, and this is something that I can't prove, but this is a, an intuition, let's say, Every part of England, at least, but I suspect also the Scottish Lowlands, parts of English speaking Wales, did have in the 19th century a term that was the equivalent of boggit that was used to apply to all solitary supernatural creatures. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples of this. In Westmoreland, where boggit was only used in the very south of the county, um, the word that was used was doby. Uh, Doby could be applied to ghosts, to black dogs, to, to uh, any of these kind of scary creatures. Um, another example, right through the Scottish borders, right down the eastern coast of England, the word bogle was used, clearly related to boggit, was used in a similar way. And I, I've never really taken this to other parts of England in a, a very um, deliberate fashion. But I have my suspicions for other words in other parts of England, um, and particularly with your interest, Mark, in, in Devon. I've never been quite sure there, but with Cornwall, I, I think that often, and this will be heretical for many people, but my suspicion is that pixie was often used in that way. Yeah, it is possible, I suppose, isn't it? But it, it's these things are so hard to pin down. Do, I mean, do we know the etymology of boggart? as a term particularly even yeah i don't think there's much controversy there's been um, a lot of different theories but really they can all just be brushed away um we have a word in middle english and middle welsh two parallel words bug in english and bug um in in welsh bwg um, and we don't know which language depended on the other, probably Welsh borrowed from English. But essentially, bug was a nasty spirit. Um, and the American word bugs to describe insects ultimately comes from the same source. And so a bog it was just it had what's called an augmentative at the end. It was just a big old bug, something like this. And so that's all that bog it means. But over this large portion of England, I say large, maybe 10 percent of England, um, it became the word of choice to describe the scary supernatural. How about the origins of the the creature itself in terms of its definition? How how far can we 
pin that down particularly. I mean, there are lots of examples of of origin stories for fairies, for example. I mean, many of which are largely discredited now. You know, the the remnants of a prehistoric race, the the kind of diminutive version of a deity, this, that, and the other. Um, have we got any kind of origin story for the boggart as we see it now? Well, so we're talking again about quite a large category and we can trace the word for boggit back into the 1500s. And my suspicion is that if there was more documentation, probably even into the late Middle Ages. As to the individual creatures that go to make this up, I, I, I suspect, and maybe this is a failure of imagination, but I suspect that in one form or other, they've been around since human beings have been trekking over Britain. Um, there certainly does seem to be something of a shift and this is true in fairy lore as well whereby boggits become let's say boggits become there seem to be some changes within the types of creatures that become popular in the late middle ages and perhaps particularly the early modern period and so maybe we could associate that with boggit Unlike fairies, though, I think that these creatures tend to be, and this is an 80%, 85% rule, fairly two-dimensional. Um, I, I often use this idea that when we talk about fairy law, we're talking about a mirror that's held up to us. They're a mirror of human society. And fairies are sophisticated. Um, sometimes they're portrayed as being more sophisticated than humans, certainly more magical. Um, psychologically, they're interesting. Uh, you could write a novel about fairies. Many people have done it. I don't think you could really do that with boggets. The whole point about boggets in all their forms is that these are shadow creatures. They're shadows of humanity. They definitely have a relation to us, but they're a kind of packed down, scary version of what we are. Um, and so in that sense, tracing them back to, as you, you, you say absolutely rightly, tracing them back to early races in Britain or gods and the like, boggits just don't normally have much in the way of personality. They're, they're scary and that's it. How are they seen in terms of the early sources? You go back to the 15th century, for example, uh, has the way that they're seen and described changed over time since then, or is it fairly consistent? So the word crops up accidentally, really accidentally. No one's writing about buckets, but every so often the word crops up. And for instance, in what I think is our second oldest source, it appears in a house deed in Midgley, um, which is near Hebden Bridge in the South Pennines. And it just describes a house that was Acker, also known as Boggett House. Now, that's a lovely example because there we are at the very end of the 1500s. Um, and yet we can trace that way of describing houses all the way to the Second World War. And we have no reason, really, for thinking that things have changed. And on a whole range of subjects, things didn't really change, at least until the time of the Great War. For instance, several of the early references um, describe the way that horses were boggeted. In other words, horses were scared. And this is something that you find right through England and, I mean, indeed, right through the world. But the idea that horses are scared by supernatural creatures. So these words sort of drip down into our sources um, and it's there's not much information there but the information that we can gather together 
suggests that the boggets that were being seen and experienced in the 1500s and 1600s had the same kind of folklore revolving around them as those that we see just before the First World War, where the sources start to be much, much better. So in terms of that folklore, what might we say the Boggart's purpose is? You know, particular elements of folklore have a, a kind of particular purpose for existing. How do we view the Boggart in that? I suppose there are different purposes. It's not just one thing. But if someone was to say, no, no, gun to your head, you've got to tell us what Boggarts really matter for. I think they're to scare the the living daylights out of us. This this is the point of Boggitz. Again and again, Boggitz referred to in fearful terms. The only exception I can think of this, which is an exception, but it's a very minor one, are house spirits, light brownies, the, the idea perhaps that Catherine Briggs gives us of Boggitz. But even there, the, it's... It, they often involve fear, even there, they're creatures that are as likely to cause trouble in a house as to help people in a house. Um, and there are a couple of exceptions to that. But I think hardwired into that word boggit when people were using it in the 19th century, people expected it to have something to do with fear. You referred there earlier to boggit House as an early example of um, the name cropping up. Um, we find it in various places in the landscape, don't we? Boggart Hole Clough is a, is a particularly well-known location, for example. Is it particularly widespread in terms of naming? Yes, and in fact, for me, this was a really important part of writing the book, that I found place names, and I found this generally with the supernatural, but place names just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful source for understanding Boggarts better. Um, and essentially, Boggit place names break down into two parts. Um, first, there are, let's say, the house Boggit names that typically supply to a house, but sometimes a farm, sometimes another building. And then there are all the landscape features. Um, and I tried to build up earlier a little bit of a contrast with fairies, saying that Boggits are shadows, fairies are mirrors. Um, Boggits are our shadows. Fairies are this distorted fairground mirror version of our own societies. And it's interesting with place names as well, that fairy place names, again, this is a general rule and there are exceptions, but fairy place names tend to be out in the wilderness or what passes for wilderness in Britain. They're up at the top of this hill in this wood, often on high, um, whereas Boggit place names tend to congregate around the community. So you would have a little village like, say, Gorton, um, a village which has now been absorbed into the Manchester today, metropolis to the conurbation. Um, but Gorton, we know from the 19th century in the works of um, a local folklorist John Higson, had six or seven Boggits placed in the landscape around the village. And these names never appear in the centre of towns or cities, um, or at least they do only in very unusual circumstances, typically when the town or city has grown very rapidly. Um, and so there's a, a Boggit name that finds its way into the middle of a city before then, eventually being discarded. And so, yes, you have place names around the edge uh, of towns and villages, and then perhaps a little bit further out into the fields, but you don't normally get Boggit place names associated with far out mountains, woods, forests, where you do get fairy place names. 
So what does that tell us in terms of the way that boggarts were believed in and how that folklore transmitted from place to place? I think it's very much this sense that, again, boggarts are a shadow of human beings. So they're there just out of reach on the edge of the town. Um, I think many years back to an article that Jeremy Hart wrote where he described some Dorset ghosts um, and he noted the way that the ghost could be seen just from as far out as you could see the town or village lights. I think that's that's right. And that's a beautiful description of what boggets are. Boggets are chained to us. They have no real autonomous existence in the way that perhaps fairies almost seem to or start to. They're just inseparable from us. And if you wanted to look at it in a very rationalist, materialist way, I suppose you could say that people are projecting their fear into the darkness on the edge of town. These places around the edge of town that for whatever reason have a slightly creepy feel. Um, or, of course, the, the more adventurous interpretation is that people are really picking up on hot spots in the landscapes, places that for whatever reason have a slightly sinister or unhappy feel, the kind of places that ideally we would not want to walk through at night on our own. Has that belief or the interaction with boggarts from a folklore perspective waxed and waned over time um, in the same way that we find a lot of folklore for whatever reason becomes more prevalent during the 19th century, that reason mostly being that Victorian collectors and interpreters are um creating a lot of it let's let's be honest um but in terms of the way that the boggart has been viewed have we seen those peaks and troughs yes i i would say they're not peaks and troughs in beliefs but in source collection and in other words what's happening is that someone in the village of Gorton to the south of this small town of Manchester, um, they believed, I suspect, in boggets in the 1600s, the 1700s. We know they did in the 1800s and the 1900s. And what changes is just that in the 1900s, people start to be interested um, and people start to be interested in writing these things down. For British folklore, and this has been my experience for the last 10 years, the 1700s is just a catastrophic century. There's a period from about 1680 through to about 1820, 1830, where the people who are going to write about things, so this is the, the growing middle classes, are just intimidated not to do so. They feel that writing about these things would make them look foolish. And there's some writing about witchcraft, um, and there's some writing as well about ghosts, but fairies and these more baroque, nasty spirits on the edge of town, the, the kind of Jenny Greenteeth-like characters, just disappear from our records. But the fact that they're there before... And the fact that they're thereafter when people begin to pick up their pens in the mid-1900s shows us, I think, that it's a source problem, not a problem of what people really believed. The trough with the boggets comes in the later 19th century, the earlier 20th century. And I would say that particularly after the First World War, belief, I have to be careful here, the use of the word boggit, people stop using the word boggit. Maybe they continue to believe in supernatural things or not, uh, but the word boggit starts to go out of fashion really rather quickly. Can you pin down a reason for that? 
I think in the 19th century, Victorian writers were very keen to identify the reasons why the supernatural was disappearing. They talked often about railways, so communities growing closer as infrastructure got better. They talked about literacy. They often talked about the schoolmaster. There's this lovely idea in English folklore that fairies are scared of noise, and writers often said the factories scared them off, so urbanisation. There are these various reasons. My suspicion is that the supernatural, that they're wrong fundamentally. The supernatural didn't actually become that much less believed in. But that what happened was that people began to believe in other things and that the boggit belonged to this perhaps 500, perhaps 600-year-old body of English folklore, as, of course, the fairies, and that in many corners of the country, people moved into a new age, um, and this included spiritualism. Um, it included a narrowing category of ghosts. Many people continue to believe in the undead. Many people, of course, do still to this day. But the idea of what ghosts were narrowed very rapidly and very quickly. Now, why that happened in the late 19th century and around the time of the Great War, I'm not really sure. But I think you do get a break. There's a couple of things there that just... <clears throat> this is a bit of a sideline tangent, but but I, I picked up on in that that, that <laughs> I find quite interesting. One, one is the whole argument about um, railways and infrastructure um, leading to a lot of these things dying out. Of course, the flip side of that is that they also led to a lot of misinterpreted folklore growing as well. I mean, there are prime examples on... Um, on Dartmoor down here in Devon, for example, where some of the stories which are really well established today came about purely because the railway was bringing tourism to the area and people needed guidebooks and went, oh, grab a folklorist, get them to write some interesting stuff for the guidebook to bring in the tourists. And some of the ideas that were perhaps not hugely accurate that went into those guidebooks then stuck and we still find them today i think it's quite interesting that that kind of argument works in two ways doesn't it yes uh, no, i i agree and this the writing of tour guides tour books and so forth um begins to to bring in another kind of folklore but even that kind of folklore mm, quickly I don't want to use this word, but just to make things brief, infects local communities. And there's a lovely example of this from what was in the 19th century, the, the county of Cumberland, where there's an incredible figure called the Crier of Glaive, um, who is this figure that appears on a local lake and screeches out loud. And the problem is that by the time we get to this story, in a, lo in a local history book by someone who was very, very well versed in local folklore, he makes the point that for the last 40 years, this stuff has been going through tourist guidebooks that have been sold on the edge of the lake. And by now, he himself, but also other members of the community, are confused what the original legend was and what was the ornamentation that went on around it. And so this kind of thing, yes, is a, is a real issue. You also... I think with this spread of infrastructure, you start to get the globalisation to, to, again, pick on an easy but um, probably slightly unsuitable word. But 
you start to get a standardization of the supernatural. And in the same way, in the very late 19th and early 20th centuries, people began, at least in the lower middle classes, to be embarrassed at speaking dialect. They also began to be embarrassed with local versions of the supernatural, a form of cosmopolitanism, even if it was perhaps sometimes a slightly unconscious form, was I saw a ghost, not that I saw a boggit. And of course, one of the consequences of this, you might think, well, it's a change of words, but it's more than that. And it's fascinating the way that different beings seem to just disappear from British folklore around the time of the Great War and after. And I'll give you an example. I'm not sure if we see eye to eye on this or not, but it's certainly an example where you know much more than I do. And that's black dogs. From what I see, black dogs are a creation of that post-interwar period. And that what you had before were fundamentally, this is certainly true of the northwest of England, whether it is elsewhere, I don't know. But what you have before are fundamentally shapeshifters. Um, beings that just constantly changed form. Maybe they were vaguely mammalian, whereas black dogs continue to be seen in the northwest of England um, after the, the First World War, um, after the Second World War, of course, up until today. But they tend to lose this shape-changing ability that they'd had in the 19th century, the, the thing that makes them so interesting in many ways. I think... <laughs> I, I I probably wouldn't agree a hundred percent with that, but that's probably a discussion for a, di a different oh, sure. time period. Um, but it is fascinating. Uh, but of course, I think we need to make the point actually that ultimately, as folklorists, a lot of this stuff doesn't really matter. In terms of pure history, that introduction of of ornamentation, as you term it, is problematic. But in terms of folklore, it's of interest. Because we're looking at why these stories change and develop and why the story that we have in the 20th century has varied from that in the 19th century. So it's all grist to the folklorist's mill, isn't it, at the end of the day? I absolutely agree with this. This is something where, where we see completely eye to eye. Um, as long as the folklore becomes a group interest, so it's exchanged within a group, it's interesting where the folklore comes from. And that's perhaps part of a folklorist's job to trace that. But, of course, it doesn't matter if in some ways it's not, in inverted commas, quote-unquote, authentic. Um, and there's a lot of silliness around this, um, and perhaps a lot of snobbishness too. And certainly for me, I'm interested in the book on the bog. It's overwhelmingly in the folklore of the 19th century. And this folklore is sometimes called prior folklore. But there's... If you have a developing idea of what boggits are and that idea catches on in the general population, I mean, perhaps I don't like it aesthetically, but that's equally folklore um, and equally deserves study. And I think the best example of this with boggits, and this is an area that Kerry Holbrook um, has written quite a bit on, and I'm sure in the next years we'll publish more and more on, it is Boggit Hole Clough that you've already mentioned, Mark. And Boggit Hole Clough is this extraordinary park in the Manchester conurbation. Uh, it already had a supernatural reputation in the mid-early 19th century. Uh, this reputation grew with time. And perhaps the park became, it took on, let's say, a rather unusual energy because the metropolis just slowly absorbed it, but the park remained. It's one of the few areas of green in the Manchester conurbation. 
And when you look at Boggett beliefs in Manchester, and particularly in North Manchester, they all revolve around that park. And there is really a quite well-developed type of folklore about the Boggett of Boggett Hole Clough. Now, if we could take this folklore back and share it with the, the good folks of Moston and these villages to the north of Manchester in the 19th century, they would have just found it hilarious. It's absolutely nothing to do with what they believed. But as you say... It's folklore and it's worth studying in that way. Yes, absolutely. And I have seen Kerry present on that subject and it is certainly ripe for a lot more work, um, which which hopefully she will cover at some point. Um, there was another interesting point, actually, that just sprang to mind, as you mentioned that <laughs> the idea of people in authority, headmasters, you know, these, these sorts of people, um, also having a responsibility for some of these stories dying out Again, just to flip that around, the last episode of your own podcast had a very fine example of a headmaster who absolutely contributed to the folklore record, didn't it, with his work? Yeah, so this is the Woolerton Gnomes. Mm. This is this famous case from Nottingham in um, September, late September 1979, where a group of children claimed to see um local they claim to see in a local park and it's a lovely parallel with Boggett Hole Clough because it's another of these parks which is surrounded by an urban area and these children claim to have an encounter with about 60 gnomes in cars um it's a fascinating fascinating episode and I, I confess myself with a little bit of difficulty in agreeing that he I mean, he certainly didn't create the folklore, but because that was the kids themselves, which is absolutely fascinating, probably and unconsciously, he was one of the reasons why this appeared first in the local press, then in the national press, um, and then in podcasts like my own and in studies like my own. So this is something that certainly spread with time. I do think, though, it's worth saying that on balance, the Victorian writers were perhaps correct in that school for most Victorian children was a place where dialect got wrapped out of you. And it was a place where provincial beliefs got wrapped out of you. They were encouraged to take on a, a national series. First of all, the national language, standard English. And then secondly, um, beliefs in Jenny Greenteeth or Boggitz may have persisted, but not generally with the approval of teachers. And Mark, I think probably you or I, I'm sure you're younger than I am, but we're probably in the same age bracket. I grew up in a, a, an England where it was still or rather, no, it, things were changing in that respect, where teachers were excited to talk about a local legend and we do a project on this. Um, and looking back, I remember these moments with gratitude. But that's probably something that was only really beginning in the 60s and 70s. I think that before that, school was not a good thing for traditional prior folklore. Now, clearly it was a good thing for many other, perhaps more important issues, but for prior folklore, it was a force that in the end acted against it. Just to clarify what, what we're talking about for people who don't know with, with the Wollaston Gnomes, um, that particular headmaster interviewed and recorded the interviews um, with all the children. So we have that in the record that we can listen back to and that, that is what has contributed to that particular story, probably surviving longer and in more detail than it would otherwise have done. I think that's probably the case, isn't it? 
I've had a kind of epiphany doing the Woolerton Gnomes. I spent rather a lot of time in it, and a book has come out associated with the Woolerton Gnomes, and I have a, a short essay in there. I, I spend a lot of time looking at paranormal experiences, um, supernatural experiences. And what I find fascinating about the Woolerton Gnomes, and if anyone's interested, I'd encourage you to do your own research, uh, because it's a fascinating, fascinating case is we just have unprecedented amount of evidence from very briefly after the children had this experience. And the evidence is um, the headmaster's interview that was a private interview, but became the subject which the local press built on. Secondly, Marjorie Johnson, who was at this point, the secretary who had just resigned as the secretary of the Fair Investigation Society, wrote a report Third, the local and national media covered the story as a kind of human interest, funny story. But this is all contemporary stuff. And then fourth, it's been possible. This isn't contemporary, but it's still interesting. It's been possible to gather in local folklore. And here we come back to your point, Mark, about in the end, it doesn't matter where it comes from. Um, it's still folklore. But local folklore about fairies and gnomes around this park and in the Nottingham area. And so you have an extraordinary amount of evidence for this paranormal sighting. And going through the evidence really carefully, I've become much more cynical and sceptical about this case than I was, say, two months ago even. But it's such a fascinating case. And for me, it begs the question, what about all those thousands of cases where we have nothing like this amount of evidence where we just take things on trust now again clearly there are two questions here one is the, the paranormal side of this and what is going on in people's brains and the other is the folklore side the truth is for folklore my objections don't matter that much what matters is creation this head of steam in a community around an event but for the other side of the question i found the Willerton gnomes can I say that they were jarring, the experience of going through these sources? It's been a little bit of a shock to me. Is that just because of things that you found out about the case that you hadn't considered before? It's just that I, like everyone else, had taken this case at face value using the first sources we came to. But when you actually gather the original sources together and when you really start looking at the evidence things start to get awkward. And I'll just give you the, the thing that most surprised me. I, I've been fascinated by the Woolerton Gnomes for a couple of decades. And I had, and perhaps it's the same for you, Mark, if you think of a, a famous black dog encounter, or I had an image in my mind, almost a little videotape of these kids having this experience together. And of course, one of the things that's most fascinating about the Woolerton Gnomes is there were six or seven kids together. And I'd imagined them in this luscious park in an evening at twilight, seeing these things, coming into contact. And I'd ask myself, I'm fairly sceptical about these things, but I'd ask myself, how is it that a group has an experience like this? And what absolutely blew me away was when I went through all the evidence really carefully and relying here on the help of some other people, but went back and examined the weather, uh, the climatic conditions, and above all, the hour of dusk, I discovered that the entire event took place in the pitch black. And you know, this changes everything. Um, now, the children were asked about this, but it's a lovely example of how when the press covered the story, this was just lost to sight because, in a sense, it got in the way of a good story. Yeah. Um, and so I think this goes in a lot when you're 
here again, we're not so much thinking about folklore, but for all those people who cover UFs, UFO stories, people like David Clark, people who look at ghost stories. Um, I think that we have to remind ourselves constantly that we only have so much evidence and that when you have a lot of evidence, you can go a lot further. But that's rarely the case. And again, for me, Woolerton was jarring because when you have all that evidence and you start to act on it, things become a little bit more ambiguous. Now, for me, the case is even more interesting now because what's clear is that these kids had seen the gnomes before. They claimed to see the gnomes in the summer holidays before. There were a series of local stories about gnomes in the park. And one of the sisters of the witnesses claimed to see the gnomes afterwards as well. So there is a beautiful article to be written there on local folklore, but it's not quite what I perhaps expected at the beginning. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Let's let's move back from gnomes to boggarts and just wrap up that particular journey. Um, the interwar, post-war period sees a kind of decline, probably in in ref- references to boggarts, but then. Now, and in the past few years, we see a revival of a lot of aspects of folklore for whatever reason, probably varied reasons. And this is something we've discussed in other episodes of this podcast, the reason for this kind of resurgence in in general folkloric interest. Um, We see an increase in fairy sightings being reported modern fairy sightings compared to older ones what's happened to the boggart in this process okay well this is an absolutely fascinating part of the story you essentially have in the late 19th century a series of texts which involve misinformation about the boggart and these texts are passed down passed down And they then start to appear in folklore textbooks. And above all, they appear in the work of Catherine Briggs, who's the most important person in the transmission of this information. Um, And this then leaks out of these fairy encyclopedias and the like into popular culture. And from there, it goes into novels and it goes into films. Now, if you just give me a second, I'll give you a sense of what went wrong in the 19th century, because I think we're back to you with the tour guides here. The way that folklore can leave the rails sometimes. Um, And it's particularly dangerous because the lesson for me of the late 19th century is in the end, it was the folklorists who were transmitting the bad information. People who in an ideal world should have not known better because they knew better, but people who should have done better had they had the right resources and information to hand. So a couple of things um, happened. First of all, in the late 1820s, a man called John Roby publishes a book on the traditions of Lancashire. This is one of the very first British folklore books. It's very difficult to read because it's effectively a series of short stories. And John Roby bullies um, uh, um, Thomas Crofton Croker, who was the great Irish antiquarian who was interested in Irish folklore and who had a lot of success publishing on that just a couple of years before, into writing a Lancashire folk story about Boggett Hole Clough. Um, and what Crofton Croker does is he feels under a lot of pressure. John Roby's nagging him. And so he actually steals a Boggett story from Yorkshire 
and he plagiarizes it. There's no other word for it. He plagiarizes it. I, I've actually got the text and I've put in italics the bit where he just took the story word for word and then slightly changed some details and set it in this Lancashire park. And he creates a house spirit um, that becomes the most famous version of the Boggit. Um, even though this is a plagiarized version of the Boggit borrowed from a Yorkshire story. And so this becomes emblematic of the Boggit. And then in the 1850s, 1860s, as Lancashire folklorists are starting to write, and there are three or four monographs that are published, Lancashire peaks early in terms of folklore. The great Lancashire folklore folklorists are actually writing before the Folklore Society has been founded. And there are three or four monographs that come out and they pick up on Roby. They're not as sceptical as they should have been. They don't realise what's going on. And they give some other cases of Boggitts, but they tend to give rather more exotic cases. Now, probably 80% of Boggitts were ascribed to the undead. In other words, they were explained as being someone died there and this created a Boggit. And these Boggitts took on different forms. But this is just something which is invisible in the Lancashire folklorists. And I think in part it was because they wanted to share some more interesting examples of Boggitts, more eye-catching examples. And this is always an issue in folklore, that we lose the garden green examples because we focus on the Woolerton gnomes and little gnomes in cars. We're victims of things which take our fancy. And then the London folklorists, um, the bane really of northern folklorists, because they misinterpret so much in the late 19th century as the folklore society is taking off. The London folklorists pick up these um, Boggett books, uh, or rather Lancashire books, and they began to interpret the Boggett out of their it's what I refer to as the goblinification of the Boggit. The Boggit out of these books as being a kind of a goblin-like creature that lives in houses. Now, this is part of the story, but it's 2% of the story. It's, it's a very jaundiced look at it. And at the same time, and here I'm going to shame myself, Mark, because I, I can't remember her damn name, but there is a Yorkshire writer, um, a, a woman writer. She's the the daughter of the man. She's the daughter of the local vicar. And she writes a series of children's stories. And on the back a little bit of this idea of the Boggitter's house spirit, she writes a story um, that describes how in houses there are brownies that help parents and this is the idea is that this is another way of describing children but sometimes brownies lose their temper and they become boggets and the idea is that brownies are good children boggets are bad children and this short story has really quite a lot of success and if that were all this would be a small contributing factor but what goes wrong is this baden powell picks up this short story and uses it as the founding text of the brownies and so you have three generations going from the period immediately after the First World War through to the 70s and 80s of young girls who grow up learning about boggits and brownies in brownies. Um, so this is for anyone who's not a British listener. This is the very lowest age level um, of the scouts. And here we get to the end of the tale. Catherine Briggs 
um, had two great passions in life. One was writing folklore and the other was being a girl guide leader. And so she brings this idea out of the girl guides um, and puts it into um, her fairy dictionaries and her other monographs. And so through this series of almost unbelievable intersections, confusions, you get to the point where Catherine Briggs, who is at the very head of all this confusion and tradition, writes with a certain amount of authority in her fairy dictionaries that a boggit is this bad-tempered house spirit. And this then gets picked up in the Harry Potter universe in various fantasy novels. Um, and for the most part, I think, we can't really describe this as folklore. It's a kind of literary folklore. The only place where this idea to some extent has caught on is in Boggett Hole Clough. And there you have a community, essentially Manchester, which has developed Boggett folklore as a community. Otherwise, it's it's a form of intellectualised um, fantasy folklore. And so that's the very long answer as how we get from Boggett's being one thing in the 1890s um, to appearing in fantasy films today in a very different guise. And it's certainly the case in terms of black dog sightings, for example, that we see that descriptions have changed in modern times in, in very particular ways. The colour of the eyes, the fact that there are more auditory phenomena now than there used to be, and that being very much the influence of modern media films, modern literature on those things. Do we find the same with eyewitness accounts of boggarts in more recent years, that they're influenced in the same way? It's a really good question. As soon as you said that, I started thinking, well, what are the eyewitness accounts that we have? And we do have a number of supernatural experiences that people say, oh, my God, that was a boggart. OK, but the, the, the difficulty here is this that Boggett beliefs start to die out very rapidly after the Great War. But one of the things I discovered doing the book, I created this Boggett census of about 1,100 memories. And one of the things I discovered that was some people didn't know what a Boggett was or they got to Boggett through popular culture, through Catherine Briggs. Um, other people remembered vaguely the word from when they were kids, but there were other parts of the Northwest, and this tends to be in Lancashire beyond the Ribble, so in the more rural part of Lancashire. Uh, it tends to be in the Peak District, um, maybe some rural areas in southern Lancashire, not so many, um, and a couple of parts of the West Riding. And there, there were, there were families and communities where the word boggit has to some extent survived with the same meaning. And so there you, you did get descriptions that resemble Victorian descriptions in many ways, in that they're ascribing some unusual supernatural experience to the boggit. I cannot think of any place, and I'll probably regret this as soon as we say goodbye today, but I cannot think of any boggit sighting which owes something to the modern popular culture version of boggits. But because I think for most people who know about boggets, boggets are like orcs. They belong to the fantasy universe, but they don't really exist. There's much less tolerance for the idea that boggets exist in its modern fantasy form than, say, that fairies exist, where you do have a number of people who believe. However, what I can say to use again, forgive me for this unfortunate word, but in fact, 
this modern idea, the popular culture bog, it is definitely infected people's definitions of what bog it should be, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the goblin emerges again and again. If you go to a group um, and ask people, so what is a goblin? Can you, sorry, what's a bogget? Can you write down a definition? First of all, it's very likely that the word goblin will come up. And secondly, you will often get references to bogs and marshes. In other words, people creating a folk etymology off the name Boggit. Now, no one in the 19th century did that. There may have been at the back of people's minds this idea that bog, which was also a word for defecate or for toilet in dialect, that it was in some ways a dirty word, an unpleasant word. But fundamentally, when people are describing boggets as living in marshes, this kind of thing, that's the popular culture boggit, which is seeped down, leached down to the water level. I can't help but compare the the term goblin goblinification of the boggit with the disneyfication of Disney's it's, uh, of fairies. It's it's the same process, isn't it? Really? It's absolutely, but I ripped it off from Disneyfication. I'm not sure who first came up with the word Disneyfication for fairies, but I, I, I do know that that's where I ripped it off from. Uh, for me, Goblinification is just a parallel process done in a more British style, let's say. Simon, thanks. It's been a fascinating kind of um, summary of the subject um, and I hope has has sorted out in people's minds exactly what the boggart is and how how it fits into the kind of wider sphere of of fairies and brownies and and other kind of sprites and spirits of of that type you have this new book uh that we've referred to a couple of times out with the university of exeter press on the subject um which is available from their website um and from various other places no doubt um possibly at some point from your local library if you can persuade them to get a copy for you too and it's also accompanied um by a kind of source book isn't it as well that's right and so if you could just give me a second here because one of my terrors with this book is there are two volumes and they both have essentially the same cover and so it's really important that if someone wants to buy this that they make sure they're buying the one that they want. So let me just give you the breakdown here. The, the book in which I analyse Boggett history, I look at landscapes, I look at folk stories, I look at supernatural experiences, is called The Boggett, Folklore, History, Place Names and Dialect. Um, and that's available. I, I think Exeter have priced it at £50. But there's then the second book, which is just called The Boggett Source Book. Um, I think, and then it's a guide to the English supernatural. So it has the same cover and the cover is the same colour. So please don't accidentally buy this if you want the other one. The good news on the second copy is this, that this is essentially a print-on-demand book um, and Exeter are just going to run off copies as people want them, but that book will be available free of charge online. Um, I haven't yet got the address for that. The, the book has just come out a couple of days ago, but if you look for it online, I'm sure you'll find it. And in desperation, by all means, send me an email and I'll either send you the PDF or put you onto the, the link where you can get it. And the Boggett source book, essentially covers three different things. Um, first of all, it's a selection. It's not the complete 
canon, let's say, but it's a selection of all the 19th century ephemeral boggets I found. So these are more obscure sources. And I would say 80, 85 percent of those sources are newspaper accounts relating to boggit beliefs and boggits. Um, and they range from supernatural experiences to really silly things. So, for example, uh, a boy is walking through a park. He sees a man urinating and he says, oh, my God, it's a boggit and starts throwing stones at the man. These bizarre little scenes that perhaps give us insights into boggit belief. The second category is a list with bibliography of all the boggit place names and personal names. So these are boggit hole clough, et cetera, but also boggits. Or, or supernatural creatures that were known by local communities with the name Boggett. For example, uh, the Boggett of Moston or Liverpool Boggett, et cetera, et cetera. And then the third category, and the one that personally I'm the proudest of, and I, I feel really happy to share with other people, is the Boggett census. These are these 1,100 or so memories gathered in from interviews, emails, um, and social media, where people just recall what Boggett meant for them, if anything. Um, and so this was my attempt to chart the decline of Boggett by plugging into living populations. Whoops, that was my micro, uh, my excitement tipping over my microphone. And Mark, these these are the two books. That um, second book, the source book, I think is a, a really valuable volume um not just for the reason that and i am painfully aware of this that not everybody can afford to buy into academic press publishing they are expensive books there's no two ways about it that's just the nature of the business there's not a lot we can do about that but to be able to download the source book free of charge regardless of whether you buy the book or not is valuable in itself but certainly these kinds of references and as you say the boggart census are really, really important documents, which which it's great to be able to share. Hopefully by the time this episode comes out, that link will be available, in which case I can put it on our website on the page for this episode and people can follow it that way. I think the other thing to say about the source book and getting a digital copy... In our lifetime, Mark, things have changed a lot as far as books are concerned. And many of us still value having a book in our hand. And I completely understand that emotion. But it's something that personally I share. Sometimes I, I print out books just because I need to be able to read them in my hand. But for something like the source book, I think there's a lot to be said for using word searches with it. In other words, if I had to choose between a concrete book and a digital book, with the history, I choose the physical book, but with the second book, with the source book, I personally would prefer the digital version just because, yes, it's more inconvenient to read. But if you're actually looking for sources or if you're looking for a word, a keyword, this is something new and exciting that we can do much more easily in a digital format. Yes, I agree. It is invaluable. Uh, let's just finish off by telling people not about my podcast which we've been listening to for an hour and probably nearly now um but about your podcast tell everybody about your podcast well i i should say first of all that i'm a complete newbie and that i think i've only done four episodes so far but there were, we have i'll explain the we in a minute a podcast called boggit and banshee um and i do this with the american um folklore writer chris woodyard who is uh, an extremely capable individual and who spends most of the episodes slapping me about and 
uh, putting me right on a whole series of questions. Um, but I and Chris, we have similar interests, but I think rather different perspectives. And so we, we like to think it makes for an interesting conversation. Um, I'm perhaps a little bit more sceptical. Chris is, I'm tempted, I, I was going to say more trusting. I'm sure she'd object to that. Uh, she can also be quite sceptical sometimes too. Um, but she's she's perhaps more interested in beliefs, um, more open to experiences that I, than I am. And so what we try and do is pick a subject every month. It comes out monthly on the first of every month. Um, and look at an individual case in detail. I'm perhaps a little bit more interested in fairy law. Chris is more interested a little bit in ghost law. There are lots of supernatural categories between those two. And so, so far, this is how we've progressed. And we've been we've been very happy. Certainly, in a selfish sense, I've learned a lot talking in a podcast with Chris. Uh, it is a fascinating podcast. I really enjoy it. And and I think what adds extra value to it as well is that you do have a tendency to kind of put together these little kind of um, pamphlets of sources and other bits and pieces off the back of some episodes as well so that people can investigate the subjects in more detail, which I think is, is also really useful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Simon, thanks so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us today about the Bogart, if people want to find your work elsewhere on the world that is the internet, other than your podcast, where should they be looking for that? Okay, well, the best place to go is academia.edu. Um, I'm, I'm saying that perhaps in Italian. So academia.edu, edu. Um, and I have a page there, and I'm quite particular about trying to put up practically everything I publish there. Sometimes I wait a year or two years. I also use it, as Mark was suggesting before, I really believe in sources and I believe in sharing sources. Um, this is part of my logic behind the Bogget Source book. And so on academia.edu, even if you hate every word I've written and you disagree with the things I'm saying, I also just put up lots of sources. And my rule is, if I found it difficult to get this source, and if the source is before about 1970, I will put it up. Because if I found it difficult, other people will too. And one of the things I feel most passionate about with research is we need to democratise things. We need to get these sources out so as many people as possible can read them and use them. I've also just yesterday created an author page on Amazon, um, and there you can find some of my past books um, some of which involve folklore, some of which are fiction, some of which are more medieval history, but that may be interesting for some readers, uh, some listeners, excuse me. I will put links on the episode page for this episode um, to these places so that people can go straight to them as well. I, I think folklore is an area where I find people are a lot more willing to share resources and information than a lot of other academic or or even non-academic subjects in fact there's something about folklore and about folklorists that kind of means that that happens more often and whether that's because it's based on a subject which exists through the sharing of stories and traditions and resources i don't know whatever the reason is i think we're in a good position 
Mark, if I can I chip in? Can I add of course. something here? No, I, I find this subject fascinating. So I make most of my money working at a university as a history professor. And what I should say straight away is academics are for the most part unbearable people. I mean, if you found yourself on a desert island, the last professional class hairdressers, anything is better than academics. Um Having said that, within academia, there are fields, faculties where you get friendlier people, nicer people, and you also conversely get worse people. Um, I, I, I would jump off a cliff before spending a weekend with 200 sociologists. Um, on the other hand, I would say folklorists are among the very, I, here I agree completely with Mark, folklorists are an incredibly friendly group of people in my experience. My theory for this and Mark, you tell me what you think. But my theory would be that in Britain, we have had this great misfortune that has also brought with it advantages. Um, since the First World War, we have not really managed to get folklore into British universities properly. Now, there have been a couple of attempts and still today, for example, I think you can do a folklore master's and you can also do courses. I, I think at Hertfordshire um, a generation ago at Leeds, it was possible, but it was always on a fairly minor key. And I think one of the keys to one of the explanations for why folklorists tend to be so nice is that effectively folklore has stayed out in Britain of universities. Um, most of, if, if I was to write a list of the 10 most impressive folklorists um, in Britain today, I, I mean, what, one of them, maybe two of them work in universities. It's, it's an amateur discipline and amateurs bring problems with them. Perhaps they take things a bit too seriously, get a bit het up, I'm not sure. But I think it makes for a much pleasanter social experience if that makes sense i agree with 95 percent of what you have just said the only thing i take issue with is the use of the terminology for amateur because i don't consider non-academic folklorists to be amateurs i consider them to be independent researchers right okay you're right i shouldn't have used the word amateur here i'm thinking back to the glorious 19th century tradition <laughs> yes. of the vicars <laughs> you know, the daughters of vicars, all these people who did so much heroic work in so many disciplines, but particularly in folklore. And I think that if you find that tradition anywhere today in British scholarly study, you find it in folklore. I cannot think of another discipline where independent researchers, to use Mark's formula, are so important. Um, and in all my time in folklore, I can only think in British folklore, this is of one person I would say is unpleasant. I've just everyone else I've met, I've had neutral or very friendly feelings towards. Yeah, there's a lot to be thankful for. Not And, and, and also, actually, I think another important point to make on this is it's one of the few disciplines where going back through history and looking at the work that's been done, the writing that's happened, the collection that's been done, and the people that are recognised for it, women aren't taking a back seat. I've, I've never quite thought of it in those terms, but just doing a census rapidly in my head, that's true. It's certainly true of the late 19th century, isn't it? That, and, and also of the Edwardian period. Yeah, I think that absolutely is right. And it's particularly true. I, I think of many people say that the golden age of British folklore um, was at the end of the 19th century in the, the early 20th century. But there's then this second golden period 
um, in the late 70s and the 80s, um, led by Catherine Briggs, who I've been dissing somewhat today, but who I adore and who my bookshelves are covered with her books behind us. And Catherine Briggs was at the head of a, a cohort of writers, many of whom were as well independent. And thinking of those... I mean, it wasn't just that women were uh, an important percentage. They were the majority, notably mm-hmm. the majority, the most talented members of that, of that group, of that generation. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's absolutely right as well. I used to think, Mark, this was maybe five years ago, that the aim for British folklore in the next generation should be to try and get back into the universities. And I've now changed my mind on that. I, I think that... I mean, good good for anyone who manages to set up a, a folklore faculty in Britain, but I, I think it would really possibly damage the discipline in some ways. I think what we need to do instead is build on this independent scholar basis. It's a controversial point, but one that I wholeheartedly agree with. Let's leave it at that point for people to mull over. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us. It's a great pleasure. Thanks to Simon for such an in-depth discussion on what is a not often discussed subject. You can find Simon's book on the Boggart on the University of Exeter Press website, and from many other book retailers. And also, the Boggart sourcebook, which Simon referred to in this episode, has now been published and is available in electronic format completely free of charge from the University of Exeter Press website. There's a link in the show notes and on the webpage for this episode on the Folklore Podcast website for you to get yourselves a copy if you want to read more about the Boggart and people's experiences of it. The Folklore Podcast and the Book Club are independent podcasts aiming to collect and preserve folklore materials for the future alongside other projects such as the Folklore Library and Archive and the Folklore Network. Find out more about all of our work on our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com Please, tell your friends about our content and share our posts and episodes in whatever online spaces you use. You can follow us on Twitter, at FolklorePod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. We try to avoid adverts in the shows to keep to the topics in hand, but this does come at a cost. If you want to help us to continue please visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com support where you can find links to our Patreon page and other information. Patreon supporters get extra content and rewards, which includes folklore materials which support the themes of our episodes in more detail. Your support is the only thing that keeps our content viable. Thank you for any help you can give. You can make a one-off donation on the website too. Thanks for listening. See you next time.